0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Emma Shortus, PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, join me in the studio to talk about US politics. Then, director Tom Creed and actor Barry McGovern joined me in the studio to talk about Samuel Beckett's What, which is showing at the Melbourne International Arts Festival. Then, Eloise Ross, co-programmer of the Melbourne Cinematheque and Film Studies Academic joined me in the studio to talk about their season on Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino was a trailblazing female film director in Hollywood. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense. This is Amy Mullins. And, uh, of course, you are tuned to 102.7 FM in Melbourne. If you have a dial, you can also stream it online at rrr.org.au. So hello to our international uh, people. I'm really excited to have with me Emma Shortis, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne and um, she's been on this show quite a few times to talk about US politics and uh, Emma is taking up the mantle. Um, She's now the federal politics person and the US politics person today. (laughs) Hello, Emma. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Hi. I am joking. You don't need to talk about federal (laughs) politics. (laughs) Yeah, I could see you like, (laughs) no. There's really, as I said, not a lot. I mean, there are things to talk about, but the media isn't talking about them. They're just talking about a horse race and our Sydney Opera House. So what a tragedy really when that's what we're talking about for longer than
1: what, four days? Yeah. like that. It is pretty sad when we're not talking about something like the IPP, IPCC report on climate yeah. change, for example, is a little bit more important. Maybe. It's pretty
0: critical. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that report did come out, um, was it Monday, yesterday? Yeah, yeah. That's right. And given your environmental
1: background, maybe you could just give us a little update. What, what did it say? Um, so it basically, you're right, it came out yesterday and it, it basically said we have, I think less than a decade to get it right, um, if that. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and if we don't, we're looking at a huge um, increase, a huge warming. We, we need to keep it between down to 1.5 and l- looks like basically the report said we're not going to do that. And I think with, with things that we're going to talk about, some developments in the US, it's looking increasingly unlikely that we'll be able to contain that warming or even that the, the political will is there to do that. If we look at our own federal politics, you know, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any action there.
0: So. No. Yeah. And... One of the key elements of this report, and I'm sure it's no news to anyone, is that um, the
1: use of coal for electricity needs to be gone. Um, yeah, by, basically immediately. Yeah. We need to phase it out immediately. And, and our own government has, the, I mean, their reaction was, well, if you if you stop coal production, will the lights will go out, of course, you know, so we can watch ourselves drown.
0: Yeah, but then the candle industry would be going gangbusters. That's right.
1: That's That's a nice silver lining.
0: Yeah. I was, well, I've just been reading about um, bees and wax and wax candles, and Mm -hmm. I just think, why not? Let's just go back. That's right.
1: Well, we might have to sooner
0: than we think. And then, yeah, I, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm, I'm the analog person. I am the analog person. It's a bit tragic. Really. Well, you'll be okay then. I will be fine. There's no transition to make. I'll be like, great, my email doesn't work. Awesome. Yeah, I might be a little bit um, distraught about Twitter, though, which yeah, is pretty critical. Emma, you're an expert in US politics. And part of the reason why is because your PhD certainly intersects with uh, US politics and policy. Can you just give us a little bit of a, I guess, update as to <laughs> what your PhD is about presumably it may have evolved over the however many years it's taken (laughs) to sweat over (laughs)
1: it yeah yeah look it has so so my phd is actually it's on an environmental success story which at the moment is is a pretty nice thing to be thinking about and reading about it's a nice distraction so Mm. i'm actually looking at the history of a campaign to save antarctica from mining so in the 1980s it looked like not least because of countries like the united states antarctica would be open to mining and so the US, the Soviet Union, a bunch of other countries negotiated an agreement that would have allowed mining to begin. And in 1989, the Australian government, led by Bob Hawke, turned around and said, No, we're not going to allow that to happen. he was encouraged by a very long campaign by environmentalists um working for organizations like greenpeace and we the, in basically two years we had a comprehensive protection agreement for the entire continent so it still can't be touched mm. can't be mined which is i think pretty extraordinary you know we don't have many success stories where the kind of um international weight of the united states has been beaten in that way when it comes to protecting the environment and protecting it Preemptively, You know, before mm. we've really messed somewhere up, usually we kind of go, oh, actually, we've Whoops. kind of really destroyed this place. Maybe we should try and protect it. And this is a really rare case where that didn't happen. So I'm trying to understand why and how and, and what lessons we might learn from yeah. that. And how do we replicate that? Yeah, I wish I knew.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> we might find out in a few months yep. when you submit your PhD. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> It's very exciting. Now, Emma, let's move into US politics, um, which I'm kind of glad to have a bit of a sanctuary to to look at somewhere outside of ourselves for once. Um, I'm sure that no one listening will have missed the fact that there was a Supreme Court nominee Mm -hmm. um, before a Senate committee, a Judiciary Committee, and this isn't um, a rare thing. Everyone who is nominated for the Supreme Court must you know, sit up and take a grilling from a, a range of senators from the Republicans and Democrats. But uh, there is something that is very particular about this situation. First of all, why did Donald Trump, who is the person who selects the nominee, why did he choose a man like Brett Kavanaugh as his nominee?
1: Yeah, I think there are, there are a couple of reasons for that. So, Brett Kavanaugh has, um, he's got basically really good conservative cred. So, he worked for... Um, George Bush, um, he was one of their assistants on the investigation into Bill Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. So conservatives kind of love him. He's kind, He was kind of a Republican attack dog. So there's that. That's really mm. good um, motivation. That's why conservatives report, uh, supported him. But also in the specific case of Trump, I think people kind of suspect that he nominated Kavanaugh because Kavanaugh had written previously about... Whether presidents should be charged while they're in office or whether they should be um, prosecuted or investigated. Mm. And Kavanaugh said they shouldn't. He believes that they shouldn't. So there's kind of a suggestion, which I think is pretty well founded, that that's part of the reason Trump stuck by him because Kavanaugh's basically said that if, you know, the president got charged and it got to the Supreme Court, he would chuck it out. Mm.
0: That's really interesting, particularly given he was involved in that Lewinsky. Clinton yes.
1: investigation, was he did he have a different view at that time? Um, I think that was sort of slightly different because it was the investigation was around impeachment proceedings so mm. it wasn't something that was getting to the Supreme Court but I think what Kavanaugh has shown us over the last few weeks is that he is a partisan operator, that's what he is, he's a conservative judge and it's kind of shattered, you know, there was an element in, in US society that still saw the Supreme Court as kind of impartial, mm. as apolitical, which is not something it has ever been, um, but Kavanaugh no. kind of blew that open with how, just how partisan he was. Well, it is
0: about what well, some people have said. It's about um, stacking the Supreme Court in terms of um, its political bent. Because now, if you look at it, um, given that Brett Kavanaugh has succeeded and been appointed over the weekend, uh, the the kind of if you're looking at the left versus right makeup of that bench, it's apparently five four in favour of conservatives now. I mean, obviously not all judges for every case are going to fall along party lines because presumably they are impartial, <laughs> unbiased <laughs> judges, hopefully. Um, but, you know, it, it is concerning when you see that there is that ab- ability to, you know, put forward a nominee who is of a certain type with very strong Political views. I mean, some people have brought up his views on um, that really important case around Roe versus Wade and the abortion issue, which he is certainly really conservative on. I mean, in terms of when people were grilling him, I know the senators said, "Oh, we will ask you what your views are on previous judgments of the Supreme Court." Did Kavanaugh talk about his views on on any of the past issues
1: or cases that the Supreme Court had to decide upon? He look, he did, but he was pretty careful. He he sort of hedged a bit and said he wouldn't be willing to comment on hypothetical cases. But his his record, his judicial record prior to now suggests that he is. I mean, he's entirely reliably conservative. And to be frank, Trump and the Republicans wouldn't have picked him if they thought he wouldn't rule in a way that they wanted In if something like Roe v. Wade came up again. Mm. So I think it's it's almost certain that should a case like that come, come up, that Republicans can rely on Kavanaugh to, to rule in their favour. And I think that's part of the reason why you see such a strong reaction to his nomination hearings, because... You know, not only is this man accused very credibly of of sexual assault, he will also have, be in a position to quite literally decide what happens to women and their bodies. Mm. So that's why that's one of the many reasons why this has become this is so contentious, and people are so passionate and so angry.
0: Yes, and presumably then he'll have the ability, along with his colleagues, to upend or overturn precedents by establishing new precedents. On yeah. these
1: issues, yeah, that's right, and and I think what we'll see is now that there is this reliably um, conservative Supreme Court, so we we've got a basically a five four majority, and and the swing, the new swing justice is is actually also very conservative. So I, I think what we'll see now is conservative states um, throwing test cases at the Supreme Court to kind of see what happens. Mm. So we'll see pretty quickly some cases coming up around things like women's rights, also around ch- transgender rights, um, things like campaign campaign financing and the, the kind of project that conservatives have had in the US going back decades, going back to those landmark rulings around civil rights, around women's rights, around gay rights that will be tested. This, is, this has been a kind of existential project of conservative... For a long time. Mm.
0: Well, this reminds me that um, one of their really key rulings of recent times was in Barack Obama's presidency uh, in terms of same sex marriage and making sure that all states had to legislate for it. Mm -hmm. Is there any potential for major
1: reforms to be undermined? in that way. Yeah, absolutely I think there is. I think that the the test cases will be sent exactly to do that with mm. with the exact aim of doing that. Now that there is this reliably conservative bench so I think that those that is the aim of getting a conservative Supreme Court so the test cases will come up around those kind of uh, issues around there's a case scheduled to be heard around transgender rights in the military um, and so that was also why they're in such a hurry to get Kavanaugh nominated yeah. to get him sworn in because they want to throw these test cases in while they can you know presumably because the Democrats have already <laughs> oh, talked about um, per- perhaps initiating impeachment proceedings against Kavanaugh mm. so they'll want to get them done as quickly as they can.
0: Yeah and Let's, um, I guess, reflect upon the significance of the Supreme Court in America, but also its influence around the world. Um, What is its significance? We know that it's the highest court in America, but beyond that, I mean and also the fact that it's a lifetime appointment Mm -hmm. you basically have to drop off the perch or get a very significant illness that incapacitates you and prevents you from judging um but like what is its significance in in terms of politics and um in terms of history and in international relations
1: yeah sure so so the supreme court is is extremely powerful we sort of don't don't really have an equivalent in australia i don't think um and it, it is sometimes i think hard to see how it's relevant to us here of course we interested mm-hmm. in it because yeah. it's such a spectacle, but, but actually I've been thinking about, the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is just how powerful not only the Supreme Court is, but individual justices are in the Supreme Court, and And the example that I go to is is actually the 2000 presidential election. So this is the election of Bush Jr. against Al Gore. And it oh, goes yes, very t- controversial. Yeah, yeah extremely yeah. controversial, right? So it goes yeah. totally down to the wire in Florida. It's within, you know, less than a percent margin um, margin, this count, and the count is stopped, goes to the courts, goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, mm. and the Supreme Court rules in favour of George Bush. In fact, it was Justice Kennedy whose retirement has got us... Kavanaugh, who was the de- the deciding vote the swing vote. So this one man has decided basically in favor of Bush and we've got a George Bush presidency. So just, just yeah. if you just take a moment to think about if the court had made a different decision what mm. kind of world we might have if we'd had a president Al Gore would the Iraq war have happened would Afghanistan have happened probably not would yeah. even would 9/11 have happened yeah. you know that you can you can question that so it's kind of extraordinary to think in that hypothetical about you know we were just talking about before what kind of action we might have had on climate change mm. what a different world we might have had in that respect so so that is the kind of influence that the supreme court can potentially have on us on on the world um so what the u.s does in this respect respect absolutely matters um and it it may matter again you know it's it's not inconceivable that another presidential election will be that close or Mm -hmm. we'll have the supreme court deciding on something that momentous and that is a great
0: point because um donald trump his legacy will be massive just by virtue of that one appointment let alone all of the other things he's been doing or yeah, not doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So all of those, um, you know, as you said, this is a lifetime appointment. So this has the power to shape American society for for generations to come and at, a, at a such an important time in our history. So Kavanaugh, for example, and, and the other conservative justices um, have a record of, of ruling in favour of um, business, for example, against protecting employees um, in favour of kind of economic legislation that can lead to further inequality at the same time that they're getting environmental regulations and so you have this kind of i guess um meeting of these two issues of, of inequality and compounding environmental issues that will really shape the u.s and as a result shape the rest of the world mm-hmm. um for generations to come in in as you can probably tell by what i've just said i think not in a positive way
0: yes now let's talk about um, the background to Kavanaugh's appointment before we get on to the environment, which I'm really looking forward to talking about. Um, the Something really major has happened in this whole process of um, trying to rush through the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh and uh, we saw Christine Blasey Ford, who is a, a psychology professor, um, come forward uh, about sexual harassment and assault allegations and we know that um, before it was made public she had privately sent a letter um, to a senator on the judiciary and one of her local senators to say just confidentially here's what ha- has happened to me um, I want it to be kept in strict confidence please don't share this but I feel like it's really important that you know that the person that you may be appointing has this history this kind of character alleged character so we've seen you know a major accusation come about and this is when um Christine Blasey Ford was in high school and uh, and Brett Kavanaugh was I think a little bit older but still a teenager and that that kind of um really blew things up a bit and she, shook up the whole process and meant that two other women came forward since to say actually Brett Kavanaugh has also um, sexually harassed me uh, and the the whole background to this then became um, what do we do because the person who we're about to appoint has major question marks around his character and then we see testimony from Christine Blasey Ford about her experience and something which has since like, really affected not only American women but also American men and people around the world because the issue of sexual assault and harassment um, really hit home with a lot of people and it kind of, I think, raised the stakes even higher in terms of the, the discussions we're having around sexual harassment and the Me Too movement. So, I mean, what what happened with all of that, like, you know, how did it play out for those who weren't watching the live stream <laughs> that I was catching up yeah. on over the weekend?
1: Yeah, I think you've summarised it really well. So you, we have this um, nomination process, which is, is usually pretty controversial and, and was unsurprisingly controversial because because Trump, basically. Um, and, and early on we have, as you say, these revelations. So Blacey Ford had asked, had specifically requested that she remain, this all remain confidential and that her identity be protected um, but her her letter was leaked um, there's a, a lot of controversy over how that happened mm-hmm. the, the senator she wrote to is, is adamant that it wasn't leaked by her And so she um, basically had no choice but to come forward and she said she felt it was her civic duty but she didn't want to do it. And, you know, in looking at what's happened to her since, you can completely understand why she didn't want to come forward because she'd since had to leave her home. Her family has received death threats. She's Mm -hmm. basically had to go into hiding and, and as we'll get to, really for nothing. Yes, so we've seen she she gave testimony in in front of a, a Senate Judiciary Committee, and you can't I think you can't underestimate. You know, she got there, and I think she it affected a lot of women because she said quite honestly that she was terrified, and it would have been terrifying. You know, you have mm. the whole world looking at you, and you're talking about something that something so horrible that happened to you and has affected your whole life. Um, and initially, we saw um, Republican senators who control this um, committee kind of saying, um, yes, we believe you, but you know, maybe it, maybe it wasn't Kavanaugh, maybe it was mistaken Mm. identity. Um, but you know, we believe you and we're, we're sorry this happened to you. And they then spent a lot more time apologizing to Kavanaugh that he was going through this, you know, horrible spectacle and that he was being subjected to such scrutiny. So we had the kind of, um, Spectacle of, of old white men kind of apologising to another old old white man about yeah. how these women are trying to ruin their lives. How they're they're the victim. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. and and he did. You know, he he sort of basically played this role of the victim. He got very emotional, very angry, and I, I think that people found that quite shocking because as he, as we said earlier, these justices are supposed to be they're not, but they're supposed to be impartial or at least look yes. like they're impartial. Well, they're the ultimate. Like in terms of making it, that is. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of the highest office, one of the highest offices in the land. It's hugely powerful and it's a lifetime appointment. And so, you know, he was kind of acting surprised and outraged that he was being subjected to scrutiny for this kind of position, which is kind of amazing in and of itself. And so as this played out, Trump is kind of uh, staying back um, and not saying too much other than, you know, uh, he actually said she is a very good witness she's very credible and then we saw in usual trump fashion this kind of escalation of language where he he doubled down um he he said you know this has happened to me i've been accused falsely accused by all these women <laughs> yeah um it's he called it a big fat con job etc etc and and so basically in the end what happened is these republican senators said to um blasey ford we believe you but we don't really care. Mm. And, and they confirmed him anyway. And I think that's why you see this kind of outpouring of rage because, because this is happening again. So uh, despite this kind of reckoning that America and, you know, Australia as well, lots of parts of the world are having around the Me Too movement, what we're seeing is, is women coming forward and telling their stories at great personal cost and men, you know, maybe some men losing their jobs, but some men coming back and some men being appointed to the highest office Mm. to the Supreme Court or, you know, winning the presidency. And so you actually see while we're kind of, it feels like we're having this moment, actually maybe not that much has changed. Um, Yeah. And
0: one of the interesting, I guess, developments that happened right about a week before all of this finally came to a head and we saw um, Brett Kavanaugh appointed and sworn in um, was this FBI investigation or reinvestigation. He had already been vetted by the FBI, but then there were a couple of senators who at the kind of last hour said, actually, you know, I think this needs to be investigated further. Mm -hmm. And the whole point was to speak to people witnesses who had accused uh, Brett Kavanaugh also to speak to Brett Kavanaugh himself and apparently this FBI investigation did none of that.
1: That's right. I did absolutely none of that. I hardly spoke to anybody. It lasted less than a week um, and, and kind of didn't tell us anything new. And, and I think that you can kind of, you could see that coming in the reason that it was called for in the first place. So Jeff Flake, who's a Republican senator, a repi- retiring public Republican, um, has a bit of a history of, of doing things like uh, tweeting about how he's really uncomfortable with something Trump mm-hmm. has done and he, it makes him feel bad um, and that he might have to reconsider his position. And then in the end, what he does is, is turn around and vote in favour of Trump. And so basically we saw this scenario happen again. So Flake was actually um, approached by two women in an elevator in the Capitol. Yeah,
0: That's a powerful video. It it really is, isn't it? So these two women
1: sort of um, explained to him that they've been assaulted in in their childhood. Um, One of them had never spoken about it before. She had to text her dad afterwards and say, you're going to see this on the news Mm. Um, and said, you know look they said really powerfully as you said look me in the eye and tell me this doesn't matter yeah. and so he got uncomfortable and his there was an face f- was yeah, like yeah yeah he was really <laughs> priceless like he it, he was so uncomfortable and like almost ashamed he was yeah he absolutely was and and that's what prompted him to to say no i need more information i need an fbi investigation and there was technically yeah, an technically. fbi investigation um and that seemingly was enough to satisfy him well it seems like one of those situations
0: where you say oh, well, the FBI didn't find any corroborating evidence to support these allegations because they didn't speak to any of the witnesses. Exactly. So therefore I can say, you know, I, I engaged in an extra process and you've I ticked a box my conscience is clear.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. And, and for quite a few senators, I think that's what's happened. And and look, these are also Republican senators who are worried, not Flake, but some mm. of the others, they're worried about re-election and they're worried about their backlash if they don't vote for a conservative Supreme Court. And they decided that was more important, basically. Which history will judge. Yeah, I
0: think so. <laughs> I, I hope. Think you're right. Hopefully we won't forget. Now, um, I want to talk about the women who have been activists around this issue because it seems like it's just growing and growing and growing in American society, this, like, anger but also this, like, proactive rallying kind of behaviour that women are, you know, doing to get behind women like Christine Blasey Ford to say, as Ellen DeGeneres says, you know, this wasn't in vain. Um, There's a whole load of, you know, celebrities getting on board and kind of, I guess, highlighting and certainly their um, presence does add more, you know, media interest to certain issues. One of them was um, there was a protest that was staged, there was a sit-in in in the atrium floor of a Senate office building and uh, people like the comedian Amy Schumer, um, Lena Dunham from Girls, uh, the TV show, Alicia Keys, the singer. Um, So, you know, there's a whole range of female celebrities saying, like this is not okay, women's bodies are their bodies, um, you know, you can't rule on what they want to do with them, that kind of rhetoric. Um, and I just wanted to play a quick clip of Amy Schumer on Twitter because I just thought this was very funny, but also kind of highlighted how this is becoming normal now is women getting out and protesting and being proud to speak out. So I'm just going to play a really short clip here.
1: Hi, Zola. I'm here with your mom. She loves you very much. I think we're going to get arrested and we're so proud of you.
0: So that is Amy Schumer um, tweeting a video to this um, daughter of a mother who she's hanging out with being like totally radical <laughs> by staging a sit-in um, and getting arrested. They did get arrested. And they had to pay, I think it was like a $50 fine each. So clearly not, you know, 2 horrible Um, but it's so common now isn't it that we're seeing not only celebrities but like thousands of women get out and you know hold up signs and speak loudly and protest like they're not just tweeting and saying oh god this is horrible I'm outraged they're actually getting off their butts and going to the places where you know these issues are centre front and centre and speaking their mind like is this something that seems to be not unprecedented, but it seems like slightly, I guess, new or different in an age where a lot of people have been, you know, clicktivists or, you know, people who signed petitions rather than heading out and doing the traditional kind of protests.
1: I think we we have seen a real surge in, in participation in politics in a way that kind of was missing um, before Trump, you know, Trump's, the rage that Trump kind of evoked at, in a lot of women really has prompted them to, as you say, to to protest against things like Kavanaugh, but also I think, and especially more importantly in the context of the US, to get organised, right, to, to actually start. Enrolling people to vote, to encourage mm-hmm. people to vote, to make it easier for them to vote, and also to stand for office. So yeah. you've seen actually a huge surge in women standing for office at kind of all levels of politics. So you know you can get elected in, in the U.S. almost every public position is elected from kind of dog catcher to a, to a senator, right? So you can actually have huge participation in politics, and we've seen women across the country um, getting involved in that. Mm. But I, I guess I'd I'd just say as well that I think sometimes it's um, it's a little bit easy to talk about. Women getting active in this way, and and women as kind of one group, whereas in the US context, especially, I think you can't really separate that question um, from questions of race and questions of economics. So I think we've got to be a bit careful about talking about women's rage when you also see particularly a particular group of of white women, mm. um, white college educated women, voted for Trump. Um, you know they they voted for Trump more than they voted for Hillary Clinton, and and Trump has a lot of very prominent White women conservative supporters like Kellyanne Conway, one of his his most vocal supporters, and you know the person who ca- who cast the kind of deciding vote in the Senate nomination of, of Justice Kavanaugh was a, a white conservative woman, and so it, I think it's important to kind of of to acknowledge the complexity yeah. of the situation while while celebrating the fact that a- absolutely these women are furious and, and protesting, but also building on on kind of decades of anger at the way that women have been treated. Mm, exactly. This isn't a new
0: thing that we went, oh, wow, I didn't know that people <laughs> exactly. were getting sexually assaulted. Let's That's get fine. angry. Yeah, and, and you make a great point. Like it's not not all women are the same and not all women have the same political views. Um, it was interesting though that I saw there were quite a few men at those protests and particularly African American men who were also there to be allies to say I stand beside these women and support them and you know not mansplain you know I'm listening
1: yeah absolutely and being
0: supportive and i think that's a great development a positive
1: development at least i think so too and
0: i i think one of the
1: you know one of the few uh positives to come out of the trump administration is is a kind of a more honest reckoning, I think, in American politics around things that, as we said, have existed for decades, and not the least of which, women's uh, women's and racial oppression, mm. and and there's been a much more honest conversation about about how to try and move forward. Um, because I guess because the situation became so, you know, you couldn't deny it anymore. So so elements of U.S. society that might have s- kind of comforted themselves with thinking, you know, oh we've got better, kind of white people who thought, no no, we're in a post racial society. Trump makes that undeniable now you know and so there's a much more honest reckoning i think about these kind of things and that is resulting in some really positive things i think just like as you said
0: yeah i am speaking with
1: emma shortest
0: phd candidate at the university of melbourne emma before i let you go i wanted to talk about the environment and how uh, trump is essentially dismantling and undermining um, their environmental protection authority it's like galling to read about (laughs) what's going on um especially given the history of the epa in america and it's like i guess the journey it went through to even become a vaguely effective agency in the first place um and, and one of the interviews I did in the past um, was with James Thornton, the CEO of Clim- Client Earth, and he was one of those um, prosecutors in America who actually changed how the EPA worked. He went in there and, like, taught them how to be better at protecting the environment and prosecuting companies who mm-hmm. were damaging it. So, I mean there were some inspiring people who really changed it for the better. And now we're seeing, um, as has been reported in a range of news organisations, that the Trump administration is looking to rescind and or rewrite every major pro-environment policy from Obama and his time as President of the United States. What where are we at in terms of that kind of undermining of the agency and um, what do you think is going to happen?
1: Yeah, so there's been, an, you're right, there's been a huge effort to undermine the, the EPA and, and all kinds of environmental regulations as a, a kind of a, a, another part of the backlash against Obama. But this, again, has been a long-time project of the conservative side of, of politics, much like we talked about women's rights and, and um uh, racial divisions this is kind of another element of that so they've been wanting to go after the EPA for a long time mm. and they've been pretty successful you know partly because there's so much else going on you know it's really hard to focus on on the EPA and we forget that you know Scott Pruitt this kind of figure of such com- controversy uh, you know made huge efforts to gut those environmental regulations and it and it is it does have a huge impact on the ground in the in the US um, not least because you know places like Flint in Michigan, which we don't really hear about anymore, mm. doesn't have clean drinking water and hasn't for 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 such a long time. You know, you can't drink the water out of the taps because it's full of lead, which is pretty shocking. That in, is crazy. In, you know, one of the richest countries in the world, mm. um, and and these efforts will continue now with a Supreme Court that's conservative. I think those regulations will continually be tested and thrown out, meaning that companies can pollute as they as they will with impunity. You know, without any fear of repercussions. Trump talks all the time about. Um, coal bringing back coal how, how beautiful coal is um so I, I you know i don't i don't think there's a lot to be optimistic about in in that sense and I, I think we'll continue to see them go after things like the endangered species act um which is an act that um environmental lawyers like you just talked about have used basically to protect whole environments from from development i think we'll probably see more pipelines um and things like that and i, and I think combined with rising inequality and more and more environmental disasters, more hurricanes, you know, hurricane season is upon us again. We will see things get worse and worse as as the Trump administration takes money out of uh, rescue operations, out of environmental protection measures. I think, unfortunately, I'm, I'm being pretty bleak, but I think mm. things are going to get a lot worse. And and things like that, in turn, to come back to our own politics, only encourage, you know, our own politicians Complacency. to have similar... Yeah, exactly.
0: And it is interesting... Um, Essentially, I feel like a lot of people probably became rather complacent under the Obama administration because they just went, oh, you know, that'll all be protected. And at least the progressives would assume that there's nothing to really rally around. I mean, there were some major things that people got upset about, but people, you know, that hasn't been a front and centre issue to, to the same extent for a very long time in terms of, um, you know, being pro-coal, being pro-gasoline. Like Trump is um, freezing mandates that new cars use less gasoline and pollute less. You know, there's some really major things. Um, he's rescinding an effort to give the federal government jurisdiction over waterways. These are, like, critical, as you say, to how people live and also whether they get diseases and illnesses from pollution and poisons yeah. that are coming from different companies and you know Flint Michigan is just one of those great examples
1: Yeah absolutely I, I think you're absolutely right and and we'll also see I think you know Trump's talked about drilling in Alaska which is is protected at the moment under national parks or, or at least it was he may have changed that and I've missed it um, we've seen we'll see more melting in the Arctic and so I think we'll see more activity there which Trump will, will undoubtedly encourage um, and you know if any of those things ever get to court so if people start to sue because they're getting sick, mm. we've got a conservative Supreme Court that, that will not support them. So yeah, it's pretty bleak.
0: Yeah, it is bleak. <laughs> and um, just before we close out this discussion, the midterms are coming up and that is on everyone's mind yep. because they're concerned about what's going to be front of mind for voters when we do get to the midterms. Um what What do you think is going to happen? Because there are indications that this whole Kavanaugh episode has actually increased Trump's popularity and has meant that um they have a better shot than they did. Mm a few weeks ago.
1: That's definitely the word coming out of the US so because this getting a Supreme Court, um, a reliably conservative Supreme Court has been such a project such an existential project and it's finally happened that the base is kind of energised by this um, and, and now thinking about all the things they can do now that they've got a Supreme Court and if they kept control of Congress. So I, I certainly think it's possible that the base will be energised in that way and and that really matters because turnout is crucial. So yeah. turnout in the midterms is historically pretty low. Um, mm. There's a lot less interest than there is in presidential elections unsurprisingly so turnout will be crucial but i think term- turnout on the on the anti-trump side will also be stronger than it has been historically in midterms because we've seen as we've been discussing this kind of outpouring of rage and and if the democrats can can win back their house that will be a game changer for them and for for what trump is able to do even if they only win back the lower house and not the senate mm-hmm. they will be able to st- to stop a lot of his agenda in that way. So turnout will be crucial. Um, I I wouldn't want to predict what's going to happen. No. It's still three <laughs> weeks away. You know, who yeah. knows what could happen between now and then. And, you know, Kavanaugh may have dropped out of the news cycle completely by then. Who knows? So, um, yeah, basically anything could happen. But I, I suspect the Democrats will, will win back the House at least and get close in the Senate. It'll be really exciting to watch
0: that. And perhaps we can get you back in when we know... As long as you're not too <laughs> under the influence of PhD <laughs> No, I'd love madness. to come back. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Emma. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM in Melbourne. 102.7 FM if you're using your radio. And uh, I have with me in the studio two wonderful uh, thespians. I have director Tom Creed and actor Barry McGovern and they both join me to talk about Samuel Beckett's novel What, which has been adapted by Barry into a uh, one-man show and it is a 60-minute Uh, version of something which is much longer in real life and uh, and as I was saying to Barry Offair I was so impressed at how he's managed to distill you know the key elements of what into a a monologue essentially. Um, I'm really pleased to have you both with me. Hi there.
2: Hi. Good morning. Hi.
0: Morning. Um, It is one of those plays where I didn't necessarily have expectations. I was aware of Waiting for Godot, which is obviously one of uh, Samuel Beckett's most famous plays, and and then Endgame is another. Um, But what is not a play? Uh, It's a novel. And so it's really interesting to hear that, um, you know, you've taken up a massive task, which is to distill some of the most key elements of this story and put it into something which is performative. Um, Barry I know that this is one of I guess a a really important project for you but you're known to be you know a Samuel Beckett expert and there are many people who have met Samuel Beckett and know uh, when he was alive that he was constantly trying to deflect interpretations or um, requests for him to lay out the meaning of his works. How did you approach um, his work and I guess pick out the the key elements that you wanted to stage in terms of what?
2: Well, I, I wanted to tell the story of this book, this strange novel. Um, it's essentially about a journey, about a man who goes to serve in a big house for a... a a man called Mr. Knott, K-N-O-T-T. So you've got Watt and not. And there's a lot of punning on, on, on the nature of being and existence. But it's a very, very funny book as well. Yes. So even though there's a lot of sort of um, philosophy in it, there's a lot of great humour in it as well. And what I wanted to do is basically tell the story of what who goes on a train journey to this little place which is based very much on Fox Rock in County Dublin where Beckett lived and the big house of Cool Cooldryna where he was brought up in Fox Rock basically serves as a model for, for Mr Knott's house in the book and there's a series of servants, a circular series of servants, so when one servant arrives at the door the man on the first floor leaves and the man who's working on the ground floor moves to the first floor and then you know, as mm. it goes on, another man leaves, the man on the ground floor moves to the first floor and so on. So there's a circularity about the journey and there's various things that happen. I mean, in a way, if I say nothing happens, that's like n- n- not the whole notion of nothing being something is, is part of the philosophy of the book so I wanted to kind of bring that across and bring up the absurdity of life in, uh, that, that is in the book uh, mm. to the fore so we've had to leave out a lot of sections of the book which would be unplayable in the theatre for instance there's a section where he goes to an asylum and meets this character called would you believe, Sam, and they have this big conversation. But part of that section of the book um, has him actually speaking backwards. And it's the kind of thing you have to read and work out what he's saying because you can work out from reading the letters mm. backwards what he's saying and so on. Um, so it's a kind of um, reductio ad absurdum. It's sort of it's like it's a man who's teetering on the brink of some sort of um, otherness, Um insanity if you like Beckett wrote it during the war the second world war when he was hiding out uh, uh, from the he was working with the French resistance and the, the Gestapo after him and he moved to the Vaucluse area the southeast of France and he wrote it when he was down there as he said to, to, to keep my hand in to keep sane mm. so it, there's a kind of bit of madness about it but it's a divine madness and we yeah. hope we've we've captured the journey in this treatment.
0: Mm. And that's really true. I think one of the things I really want to pick up on is this idea of nothingness and what nothing is. Many people would assume that a vacuum or something that is empty is nothing, but as you say in this play, and as Beckett. You know, returns to nothing is something. Yeah. Um. Some. Could you, I guess, tell us about some of those key lines that um, Beckett uses around nothing and it being something.
2: Well, now we're getting into. We're talking about existentialism. (laughs) We are, yeah, yeah. Well, the opening uh, line—the opening line in in the adaptation I have doesn't—it comes from way in the middle of the book somewhere. uh, The only way one can speak of nothing is to speak of it as though it were something just as the only way one can speak of God is to speak of him as though he were a man mm-hmm. which to be sure he was in a sense for a time and so on and as the only way one can speak of man is to speak of him as though he were a termite so it's the idea of like what do we later on he talks about the nature of words and what things mean and uh, he says looking at a pot for example or thinking of a pot you know um, is it really what do we mean by a pot because in different languages there'll be another word and we, we call this uh, a glass of water in front we call this a glass, but in another language it'll be ver in French or whatever. Mm. So, so the nature of sounds that we use to signify something—it's it's a sort of philosophical idea. But in in each language, it will have a different sort of shade. So, wh- what do we mean when we signify things? You know, put names on them.
0: Yeah, and one of the <clears throat> funny elements of this play—there are many elements that are funny—is um, when you. I didn't even see you pull it out, but you pull out a, a poster, <clears throat> excuse me, which says, Ceci uh, n- n'est pas un pot, which mm. is that play on a very famous artwork about This Is Not a Pipe. Mm. Um, Magritte, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was a, a really well timed and very um, meaningful addition to what you were saying uh, on stage. <clears throat> Tom, maybe you can then pick up on that because you. Yeah. <clears throat> have worked with Barry in staging this and bringing it to life uh, from a director's point of view um how do you bring to life a text which is you know it's an, an, a narrative it's um bringing people on a journey it's very um linguistic and a play on words and um there's a lot of repetition in the words um how do you i guess yeah bring to life something like that
3: um we've been working on it for quite a long time we first um uh, we first staged a version of what uh, eight years ago um, actually eight years ago this week um, in Dublin and that previous production toured around the world um, including to Perth in 2013 um, and now we, uh, I suppose we're, we're coming back to it uh, to take another look at it and maybe to, to look at it uh, from the vantage point of a few years later um, I guess a lot of um, my work with Barry has been really about trying to um make sure that we're as clear as possible about everything that's going on in the text and about how we sort of structure that on the stage in a way that's uh, that an audience can engage with um so a bunch of it is about it's about rhythm and it's about um uh, yeah you know sort of particular being really clear that we're we're working like a word at a time on the mm. text um and then working with the designer to um, uh, to kind of make a space uh, and to work with the light that helps in a very light way to tell the story, so that in a way the um, that, that 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 we make a kind of space for Barry to be in with the audience uh, uh, and yeah, just help the audience a little bit through it, I guess.
0: Mm. And it does remind me of the light and its function. And one of the more obvious moments was um, when we were talking about the sun and the moon and the fact that he really didn't like either, which is really, there's so many points that are very funny because they're absurd in a very everyday way. Like presumably there are lots of contradictions in humans Every day that we don't necessarily emphasise or make as obvious as these kind of contradictions that are inherent in what. Um, one of the really funny points and interesting points um, in terms of symbols and how humans behave was what's smile and how he's basically enacting a smile. Um, can you talk a little bit about that kind of section of the, the script and the way that you engage the audience? Because you almost kind of illustrate what what is in the text
2: well what is really is sort of an outsider he's on some perhaps yes yeah, some people have said sort of an autistic spectrum or something where i mean the line in, in you're talking about is what had watched people smile and thought he understood how it was done so the idea that somebody would have to think ah that's how that's done where it's such a natural thing as a smile mm. which as a baby you start off very early smiling in fact a baby's first smile is a wonderful thing because when they're born, they're they're not they're not really able to they're not able to do anything except perhaps cry and and uh, eat and drink. Mm-hmm. But then smiling's beginning; it's a beginning of sort of a feeling and an empathy with the world. So that's it. That's a key line in a way. But I think one of the most important things in, in Beckett for me is the fact that he's so musical and that his all his texts seem to me to cry out to be heard or read aloud, yeah. either by yourself or by somebody who's who's you know, hopefully, good at doing it. Um, when I did another one-man show, um, I'll go on, which I actually did twenty-one years ago in the same theatre that I'm in now. Um, uh, it was based on three novels: Malloy, Malone Dies and the Unnameable, which are in the first person. You know, I am in my mother's room; it is I who live here now. Whereas, mm. What is in the third person, and it's, it was a much more tricky novel to adapt. And um, but but one of the things about What is there are so many pages where there are lists and lists and you can't go on ad infinitum doing this on the stage because it would yeah. bore people even reading it it bores some people but <laughs> others it's absolutely fantastic because you actually work it out there's a kind of logic a perverse logic to it mm. but one of the things that there are, great, there are great sections where he for instance when Arsène the, per- the servant who's leaving addresses what when he arrives he's these great talks about the circularity of the year you know and um, uh, it, it, they're wonderfully funny Lists, but they're, they're containable. They're like within like half a page or so. So you can yeah. speak these aloud and they're wonderful to hear. And the, the story of Mr. Graves the gardener, the story of Mrs. Gorman the fish woman, yeah. I mean, they're witty stories, but they're also very serious stories in a way because they're, but they're funny series. You know, they're philosophy made fun, mm. but in a very sort of serious way, even though they're still very humorous. So I thought these are the sort of things that need to be read out and need to be kind of explained by somebody who's rehearsed it and is able to sort of you know, speak it so that it would become clearer, hopefully, than if you just read it yourself for the first time.
0: Yeah, it, it does make it a lot more accessible. The the And and it does mean that you can, I guess, reflect and read into it with your own meaning or your own um, background and, and think about what the potential meaning is, not necessarily what the author has designated the meaning to be. Um, <clears throat> and I was reading through some of the Um, quotes and some of the people who uh, were friends with or at least met with Samuel Beckett many times and um, he really was very um, reticent to explain any of his work and really didn't um, explain anything Uh, and I guess that's another one of the great mysteries of his work is that there isn't like an official meaning that we must read into in in any of his works and presumably that means that it's open so much more open to interpretation from people like yourself Barry and Tom who are bringing some a kind of new meaning or um, at least a new framework for people to create their own meaning out of this play.
3: The last line of the book, isn't it, is no symbols were none intended, which is, of course, it's a typically Beckett thing, because that Mm. could mean that there are symbols the whole way through it and he's intended them all. Or it could (laughs) mean that there are none at all. So, you know, there's a kind of play, there's a playfulness to that. But I think, um, yeah, there was always a sense that Beckett wanted to, to sort of really play with the reader or the listener about whether this was... Uh, the most profound thing that had ever been put to paper or something really uh, puerile and stupid. And I think, um, and I think one of the things that's kind of quite delightful about Watch, particularly when you're listening to it in the theatre, is uh, the combination of those two things. Mm. So the scene with, uh, with Mrs. Gorman where um, essentially, we have this sort of like uh, almost unconsummated relationship with a fish woman who comes to the door. They sit in <laughs> on each other's Thursday. lap on a Thursday. They sit in each other's lap, and they uh, they have to keep changing position because it's very uncomfortable. But somehow, the the, the 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 logic of describing this and the mathematics of this is taken to a uh, this hilarious, absurd uh, length. So on the one hand, something sort of mundane where almost nothing happens is analysed in this kind of relentlessly uh, forensic detail.
0: It is. It's it's really like overly logical. And, um, you know, a lot of the things that you need not explain are over-explained. Yes,
2: that's true. And it's a kind of, I, I once described it as a novel about obsession, if you had to describe it in one word. And in a way... Um, Part of it is Beckett, but part of it is is the character who's created What and the other characters of the book. They're obsessive about their need to explain. Yes. And um, I think it says something about all of us because we all have a need in some way or other to explain. But uh, there's no one definitive sort of um, explanation of this or any other work. When when Beckett didn't talk about the meaning of his work, he was quite happy to talk about... um, uh, certain things in his work, if 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 you know, to actors or to people or directors or people who wanted to, you know, who could help him to present the work to the public. Mm. Well, especially in the theatre, because a novel is a different thing. But even though he he was vehemently against um, adaptations of his work into other mediums, he, he nevertheless um, was quite ambivalent about this because he allowed at times um, radio plays to be done on stage against his better judgment often and he said you know, I never want them adapted but he and he certainly allowed certain actors to do adaptations of the novels and so on. Um namely people like um Jack McGowan or or Patrick McGee doing his readings and so on. Or so, Barry McGovern. Well <laughs> I'm a bit after these men. But this, this, you know, there was an ambivalence about it. I mean, like Annie, mm. even though he was notoriously private, obviously when he wrote, he wanted people to read his work. You don't write just for yourself. So there was an ambivalence. There was a privacy about him, but it needed other people to, uh, to bring his work to the public.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. I know that um, he did establish... Friendships with some people who were intensely interested in his work. Um, there was a uh, a man who I think he's German who studied medicine and um, met with Samuel Beckett many times and became quite obsessive about Beckett. Ended up writing a book about
2: about Beckett. what was it? was, yeah. it, was, was, was it Gottfried Butner? I think it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, he wrote a book about what? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I borrowed he was that. was a doctor.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting to see because he felt like he had a, more of an insight into some of his works because of his first-hand meetings with Samuel Beckett. Um, and I wonder how much of that is really the case. But I know that you, Barry, have also, in the past, you met with Samuel Beckett
2: I did. I met him in a few times. I met him a few times in the last few years of his life. I first met him in. He died in eighty nine. I met him in eighty six. When, when we brought I'll, I'll go on to to, um, to Paris for, for, for uh, it was Beckett's eightieth birthday in, in nineteen eighty six. But he, he he would have nothing to do with any celebrations. But there were yeah. things at the Centre Pompidou and places around Paris. And uh, when Michael Colgan around the Gate Theatre who presented I'll Go On and I came to Paris he agreed to meet us because we'd been in, in um, correspondence with him and he was very charming and very helpful and so on and um, almost came to a dress rehearsal. He wrote down at the back of his cheroot packet the time when Michael said to him we're having a dress rehearsal we'll make mm-hmm. sure there are no press people there or journalists, if you want to, come. And he thought from when he wrote down the time and the date. I was very nervous. <laughs> I feel like Shakespeare coming to watch you play Hamlet or something. Yeah. But um, he, he wasn't able to arrive. He, he sent a message, just like the boy in Godot, saying Mr. Beckett will not come this evening, but surely tomorrow. So, um, oh. well, it wasn't quite like that. Mm-hmm. But it was that kind of mess. He couldn't make it, so uh, yeah. he didn't there, wasn't there. So he, he didn't see it. But uh, he was very um, helpful with... With us, and very, and very, um, very charming too.
0: Yes. Well, presumably, then, um, given that that was an adaptation, he was.
2: Yeah, s- it, it okay was adapted by it. me and a friend of mine, Jerry yeah. Jukes, who's a Beckett and Joy scholar, and um, yeah, it, it was um, a very interesting experience. I, I don't know whether he ever read it or, or saw it um, uh, well he, would, he didn't see it but I mean he heard a lot about it, he had a lot of um, spies in inverted commas around the world who reported back to him on things they'd seen mm. and um, I, I, I'd been told by some of them that the reports were okay so that he must have been happy enough with my doing it you know yeah. I, he, he had uh, I, I I was curious as to why he gave his permission but I had done Endgame the year before in the Peacock Theatre which is the small theatre in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin and um, I'd found out later from a close friend of his that she'd seen Endgame and liked it and reported back to him on it so maybe he had heard about some of my work in, in his, with regard to his work I don't know
0: yeah it is um, really interesting his place in not only literature and um, theatre but also in philosophy because people like uh, Camus, for example, um, you know, wrote fictional works that were kind of seen to demonstrate a lot of the uh, existentialist philosophy of the time and we know Jean-Paul Sartre did that as well in his own plays and, and works. Um, but one of the interesting things I've read, um, one of the great writers of of absurdist um, criticism is Martin Esselin. And he was talking about the fact that um, Beckett's writings are more than mere illustrations of the point of view of existentialist philosophers. They constitute the culmination of existential thought itself precisely because they are free of any abstract concepts or general ideas. So he's kind of saying that they go a step further than, you know, signalling or explaining a concept he kind of says they embody the concept
2: itself i think that's very true and beckett was the first to say that, you know, that he wasn't interested in philosophy and had rarely read philosophy i think that's not true at all he must have and um i mean schopenhauer plays a big part in, in the idea of of, uh, of of beckett's works and the ideas that are embodied in beckett's works um, But I I, I always, you know, I I met Martin Estland once or twice uh, and um, he wrote famously, of course, the book The Theatre of the Absurd. I've always thought that Beckett's Theatre was not absurd, that Ionesco, yes, or... um, um uh, you know, Edward Albee, perhaps in America, would would be sort of absurd to in a sense. But I, I never thought Beckett seemed to me so utterly real yeah. to me. You know, I mean. But he's he's contained in this school, which he would never have any part of. But mm-hmm. uh, I do think, yes, that the, the philosophy we were talking about, that's in what, and in lots of other of his books. It's 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 really a result of his voluminous reading of most of the Western canon that he just knew so much, and of course he knew about art, v- visual art, mm. so well he, he 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 could have been uh, you know he, he applied for jobs uh, as, as visual arts you know as as a director of museums and things and, and wanted to do, do, do um, film work with um, Eisenstein at one stage and he, he was incredibly well educated i mean music too he knew an awful lot of music was quite a good piano player and um listened to an awful lot of music and his work is so musical so in a way the philosophy that just comes mm-hmm. from that sheer uh, experience of 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 mainly western art and made the philosophy in beckett for me you know
0: yeah yeah i think you're right it's it's more of like a hyper real um, portrayal of life which just happens to be absurd i mean i don't think his behavior is necessarily out of well, life is absurd yeah the whole of life is absurd yeah nothing
2: and is more real than nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> it's <if> a <laughs> phrase he uses the Malone dies and it's not original it comes from democritus the, the greek philosopher but i mean it's 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 so true and of course it's there in king lear in the very opening scene you know
0: mm. yeah and you did talk about how he's quite musical and this the text is musical. Mm. Um, he did write to Alan Schneider and say that, quote, my work is a matter of fundamental sounds. No in brackets. Intended. Yeah, no joke <laughs> intended. <laughs> made as fully as possible and I accept responsibility for nothing else. If people want to have headaches among the overtones, let them and provide their own aspirin.
2: Absolutely, mm. yeah. Such a great... Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, It it does remind me and make me think that it is musical because you really need a a voice that has a great timbre and that can um, add nuance to what is a very, like, linguistic, um, very well-constructed kind of... Somewhat unnatural but natural um, text, and your voice, Barry, is very. It lends itself very well to this particular kind of theatre and and text. It at least comes across that way in your performances.
2: Well, I can't really comment about that. Maybe I I don't hear myself the way other people do, but
0: well, Tom, being a director of you know this, it's not just the action on stage; it's the way it's expressed and how you can convey. Uh, meaning and emotion, or not, um, through the the voice and the body. How do you approach texts like that? And and when working with actors like Barry, who have you know a deep kind of rich voice to work with, and obviously you know the Irish accent also lends itself to that text very well.
3: Mm. well I think I mean one of the I think one of the reasons why Barry has. Uh, had such success in Samuel Beckett's work is because Barry's also such a good musician. So um, you've, you know, you, you sing and you uh, you have written music and things. So I think that there's a, there's a sort of deep understanding about the musical structure as well as the meaning that underpins things. And in a way, um, you know, the work that we did in the rehearsals on this is um, has really just been about giving... As much attention as possible both to the meaning and the to the musicality, so that we can in a way kind of present it as clearly and as ambiguously at the same time mm-hmm. and it 's funny, I think you know people um you know sometimes ask you know oh, what 's it about and actually on some level it doesn 't matter what it 's about it is something rather than yeah. being about something and I think the experience of um uh there's a there's a, for me every time i um, Uh, every time I I I listen to and watch Barry uh, performing what there's a great pleasure in the in the experience of it and the, the the knowing and the not knowing and the what is this and the I don't know what this is and um And kind of making connections between things yourself and uh, being surprised by the humour. And I think for a lot of people also being surprised by how moving um, the piece is. And I think, you know, Beckett knew something about, uh, you know, particularly in that context during the Second World War, about being uh, away from home and being kind of uh, placeless. And, you know, I don't think we're, uh, we're making a production of what to make in a any explicit statements about the world today but certainly there's something I find that maybe even more than when we first approached what uh, eight years ago um there are so many watts uh kind of dislocated around the world now and I think it's interesting for me to to let Watt resonate with the con- the contemporary world and so many people who are um going on journeys to strange and alienating places and to, to try and find a way of making a life for a time and then moving on again
0: mm, that's a good point it certainly brings me to the structure of the play and the journey because you know um, what goes on this train journey he arrives at mr knot's house he does a few things has some interactions and Um, this is at least in the adaptation not the novel and then leaves and you know goes back to the train station and kind of seems to arbitrarily pick his next destination and then you probably any you know traditional um, thinking person might go what was the point of the journey why does he go to this place and why hasn't he got a firm idea of where he's going next what are the answers to that or are there no answers and that's kind of the point.
2: Well, one of the curious things in the book is that uh, towards the end, uh, when he goes to the station, um, there's a lot I had to leave out. But the the, he, he, the train arrives, and nobody gets off, except a bicycle gets off for a Miss <laughs> walker, and nobody gets on, and the train goes off. So we never know whether what has got on the train mm. or whether um, he's got on, but nobody's seen him get on or what. It, it or what? <laughs> it's it's kind of. Um, it's ambiguous but that's I love that about it that you you and then there's a little last scene where the the station master and the signal man are just saying what a wonderful day it is and how lovely it is to be alive and all the rest of it you know mm. and of course Beckett once famously was a beautiful day at Lord's Cricket Ground somebody said to him what a beautiful day It's what a, what a wonderful day to be alive and Beckett replied oh I wouldn't go as far as that <laughs> so um, you have that sort of graveyard humour there as well mm. And of course one of the the, the last piece that, that that Beckett ever wrote was a piece called What is the Word mm. <laughs> And you can have, you know, the, the we, we tend to say what like you do here, but in Britain and what and W H A T and W A T T would sound the same. So what is the word? So it's it's curious, you know, the way he plays on this. And of course you, um Tom was just talking about all the, the what's in the world, but they're all the the nots, the have nots as well. So there's mm. a constant play on on reality and unreality and what seems to be real and what seems not to be real and so on, which mm. is is really our experience of the world.
0: Yeah, and as you said, Beckett was very well educated. He spoke uh, more than one language. Uh, he wrote this in English. Yes. Presumably that's a benefit in a way because you're not relying on translations and the interpretation of a different language
2: speaker. well that's true um, and, and he, about half his work was written in French and half in English more or less and um, this was the last work written in English before um, the, the wo- uh, d- d- during the war he'd written then he went into a big long, long writing in French but he did return towards the end of his life and uh, not only at the end but he returned occasionally to English um, and wrote in English and French after that but um, yeah, when we were doing um, I'll Go On, which was based on the three novels which were written in French, I often mm-hmm. had to go to the French, but he translated them himself, one with the help of somebody else. But he, his English language versions are originals in their own sounds, because yeah. when you compare them, sometimes they're quite free, and it wasn't as if somebody else was translating them. So, in a way, the, the, the English version of Waiting for God or Endgame, both of which were written in French, are fully... English versions that he wrote, yes, and not he wasn't satisfied with them. But then he never was with translations. But um, but they're marvelous in their own right, and they've a very
3: Irish flavour to them. The the, mm. the syntax is very very Irish. Mm-hmm. There's also though it's um, it's been interesting working on this, um I mean, you know the text so well, of course. Um, and there are a bunch of different versions or different editions of the novel um, that were edited by different people. You know, have different punctuation or different words. Um, and you know, occasionally we found that there's a sort of particular, uh, a, a particular version uh, has a, a certain kind of richness or a certain kind of inflection that we don't find in the other versions. So even coming back to it this time, we've changed maybe a handful of pieces of punctuation or added. A yeah, but there were really
2: just uh, errors in in the editions. They weren't so much edited by somebody as as actual errors in the in the. Typesetting, you know, for the odd word was left out, or, or a word was a bit different, or something like that. But um, and then it, there's this little music at the very end of most editions. But in one particular edition, the one that's most prevalent in, in Britain and Ireland, the John Calder edition, there's there, there's no music written at the end because probably couldn't afford to put in the typeface mm, or something. Right. But. Uh, there you go. That's just variations in different traditions.
0: Mm. And it took quite a while for what to be published.
2: Yes, yes. It was published in 1953, August 1953, by a group called the the Mervyn Juveniles, as Beckett called them, really led by a wonderful man called Richard Seaver, whom I knew quite well and who died some years ago. And um, he was in Paris after the war. He was, being, he was a GI, and he was in Paris, and he. Uh, him and a group of people um, just sat around and read this. They were they were interested in literature and publishing and they, they eventually published it with Olympia Press um, in a, a, a limited edition and then it came out in a, a bigger edition, 58, and then in the 60s it was published by Grove Pre- or 59 by Grove Press and then mm. 60s by John Calder in Britain, yeah.
0: Mm. And before um, we finish our chat, I just want to get your sense of where Samuel Beckett and his work fits in the modern kind of literature because you we were saying how he perhaps doesn't fit into absurdist theater in your view you know what are who are his peers and um, how does he stand up against um, some of those people that are uh, often compared with Beckett?
2: Well, I think he's one of the great writers of the 20th century. I think in years to come, centuries to come, when people look back about what it is to be alive and human in the 20th century, Beckett's work will, will, will be up there and do it for them. I think Joyce, um, Kafka, you know, people like that. Mm. I mean, he's up there with the best in the 20th century, in my in
3: my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know that that so many uh, writers who've come after have been uh, so influenced by Beckett as well. I think you know that there's a, um, and I think this uh, this sort of playfulness and seriousness and uh, the the storytelling, but also the the kind of awareness of the, the the writing as writing, you know, is something that that we really get from Beckett. Um, but it feels I- extremely modern. I mean, that's one of, yeah. the, one of the things about it. Uh, I'm always struck by how modern it is um, and, uh, and also so timeless. And I think that, you know, that's the experience in the performance that you, you have something which is really immediate and, uh, and feels so contemporary, but also feels kind of out of time in a way. I think that's very true and ironically I mean I completely
2: agree with Tom but sometimes a lot of the language he uses and the meanings of words are quite old fashioned like something I can remember from my grandfather's time like even the use of things like great coat which is not usually which is like an overcoat whereas if he says a coat it usually means your jacket you know which was known as a coat in those times and, and a lot of other phrases and words he uses are quite of the middle or early part of the 20th century. And yet his work is so timeless, you mm. know, I mean, it really is for all time. And I mean, that's why it was so avant-garde at the time. And, I mean, people couldn't make head nor tail out of waiting for God. And, of course, it's, it's quite simple. I mean, um, I, I, my stepson went to it when he was eight. He's now 36 and a father, but um, almost a father, as, as Mr. Gray <laughs> would say. No, he is a father. And um, uh, he, he he actually came out after seeing it at the age of eight and said, you know, I know what Mr. Wade Forgot is all about. He'd heard, he'd heard rumours that people had difficulty with it. He said, it's about these two men who wait for somebody who never arrives. And, you know, out of the mouths of babes, you know. In a, of course it's about more than that. Yes. But when people lose the simple direct line, they're missing the point. It, it's about that. It's about an awful lot more. There are accretions on that. Mm. But unless... You know, as in what, it's about the journey to a house and serving there for a time. Things happen and then he leaves. And that's what happens to all of us. You know, we've come to Melbourne for two weeks to do what and then we will pack our bags and go home and leave. And this is our what experience. And every day people do that. They go to work, they come home on the train or tram or whatever it is. And in a way, it's all art is really, you know, a reflection of life. You know, it's, it's that mirror.
0: Mm. It's been amazing to chat with you and really thought-provoking to talk about this after having seen it and um, I really appreciate your time and generosity and I hope you do enjoy your time in Melbourne again. It's good we to are. have you back.
3: Yeah, no, it's been great.
2: It's great to be here. It's a wonderful
3: city. No, it's great and, you know, we've really, I think there's uh, um there's something about Watt and Beckett as well that it feels like Australian audiences really connect with. There's yes, a kind they of, do. You can get it from a, the word go. There's a sometimes. kind of humour and a humanity, I think, that uh, that feels like it's really connecting with audiences. And, um, yeah, we've got, I guess, we've six more performances uh, at the Arts Centre, so um, hopefully uh, many more people can come in and see it. I
0: yeah. hope so, yeah. It really was so enjoyable that I thought um, I'd almost have to see it a second time to get more of what was happening because it is just a constant you know linguistic tour of his mind and and logic and yeah it's just it does paint a picture but I'm sure that people would get different kind of things from different viewings of it so it's it does seem like a, a text that would give and give they can go see it if they would like to. Anyone can. Um, it finishes on the 13th of October, so there is plenty of time um, to see what, and it is at the Arts Centre as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival, and I have been speaking with director Tom Creed and actor and adapter of the play, of the novel, sorry, Barry McGovern. Thank you both. Thanks. Thank you. you. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia my next discussion, which is with Eloise Ross and uh, she is a co-programmer at the Melbourne Cinematheque. She's also a film studies academic and uh, there is a great season coming up starting tomorrow, I believe, um, which is on a female trailblazer, Ida Lupino. And uh, she was really a woman of many talents and um, certainly led the way in terms of role modeling for other women to follow her later on. So I'm really looking forward to chatting uh, with Eloise now. Hi there. Hi, Amy. How are you? Hi. Good, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. It is good to have you in the studio uh, because I said um, at the top of the show, we spoke on the phone last year about Dorothy Arsner, who is such a fascinating woman.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I was on the phone, so it's nice to finally come in and meet you. But there's a funny link between Arsner and Lupino. Well, not really that funny, I guess, but Arsner was the first woman inducted into the Directors Guild of America and Lupino was the second only. So, mm. you know, that's kind of a, a link between the two of them.
0: Yeah. And we were talking off there about the chronology of when they were in, engaged in Hollywood and the film industry in, in America, because we're mm. talking about American cinema at the moment. And um, Asna was predominantly a director um, and she was, you know, directing films Um, as you said, in the silent Mm -hmm. era, the pre-code era, um, before there was this kind of like a set of expectations upon filmmakers. Yeah,
4: so it's really interesting. Like what happened when sound came in is that Hollywood sort of realised that films could be marketed and that it was a business. And so when that happened, you know, this kind of patriarchal um, status kind of descended upon the film industry. Mm. So a lot of the women filmmakers who were working in the silent era got shoved out, so to speak, because they weren't seen as being you know responsible enough to deliver on on products that were meant to make a lot of money. Um, so so Arsner did manage to kind of push through that and continue through into the early 1940s. Mm. Um, but she was not making a great deal of films during that time. I think she made a, a lot in the 30s and then only a couple...
0: Yeah. And the I guess the other kind of overlap between Dorothy Arsner and Ida Lupino is their, their focus on social issues that were kind of uncomfortable to portray at the time and no one else was really doing it and doing it from a female perspective many times.
4: Yeah, so that's why I think Ida Lupino's filmography, she directed seven films officially but had one other film that was uncredited and maybe a couple of others that she assisted on. But, yeah, she really did kind of focus on those social issues that were taboo, that it was taboo to discuss. And she didn't make a great deal of money. Her films weren't widely um, spoken about or widely successful, maybe for that very reason, that she was just Mm. pushing at what was seen as uncomfortable subject matter.
0: Yeah, and she was one of those um, people who essentially kind of went, well, I'm just going to go do it myself, which is... What we've been praising Reese Witherspoon for <laughs> recently is, you know, Reese Witherspoon starting her own production company, directing or and or funding and producing the types of TV shows and mm-hmm. films she wanted to see. We also saw Ida Lupino co-found a production company um, herself. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a, a, a unique yeah. thing to have happened in the mid-20th century?
4: Yeah, it really is. Um, as I mentioned to you before off-air, you know, there were a couple of women working in Hollywood as screenwriters and as producers, but they were producers working within the big studios. Um, and Lupino worked for a few big studios Um, as an actor, Paramount, Columbia, um, Warner Brothers, then quite significantly, but realised that there was very little room for her to move and do the things she wanted to. So Mm. with her husband at the time, Collier Young, she started a production company in 1949 called The Emeralds, I think is what it was called initially, and then they renamed it The Filmmaker's. Um, And from there, you know, she was very savvy. So she both got to um, write her own material. She did act in a film that she directed once in 1953 called The Bigamist. But overall, she just got to put the material that she wanted on screen. And she actually negotiated with Howard Hughes, who was running RKO in, I think, 1952. And they signed an agreement. So her um, films were distributed by this major Hollywood studio.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting that it was Howard Hughes that was yes. the person. Um, so, let's talk a bit about some of the, um, the pieces that she's very well known for, at least in the cinema world. Um, mm-hmm. I hadn't even heard of her, mm-hmm. I'm sh- ashamed <laughs> to say, and I did study cinema. Right. Um,
4: it's not, I mean, she, it's kind of changing now and it does take some effort to kind of insert her into your teaching regime, um, mm-hmm. and I certainly try to, but she's not generally included you know she's not one of the main acknowledged auteurs although she is considered an auteur because she had so much control over what she did Mm. um so she should be in that catalogue of you know big filmmakers but but yeah yeah
0: well i mean she was working at a time the same time as alfred hitchcock was working Mm mm-hmm
4: yeah. So, you know, I mean, he gets taught and rightly yes, so, yeah. but but she should also, I mean, not only was she skillful in getting issue social issues out there and into the screen and kind of coming to things with a, a woman's sympathy, shall mm. we say, but she also was just a very good filmmaker in terms of her aesthetics, her editing, her framing, just everything was, was really very good. Um, you know, very sharp and um, beautiful to look
0: at. Mm. One of those um, films that is, well, it's, I don't know if you'd call it beautiful to look <laughs> at, but it is very stark mm-hmm. and commanding is The Landscape in The Hitchhiker, which is the first film that we'll be showing um, in the season. That's right. And mm-hmm. it's kind of surprising or not that <laughs> a female directed it because it's an all male film. Mm-hmm. Um, film. Like, yep. it's really portraying uh, a friendship of two men who are off to go fishing. Um, they're like on kind of like a road trip through Mexico, um, although it was filmed in California. Filmed in California, yeah. On a very tight budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it, it is very, I guess, commanding that the like landscape, the rocks and the desert that they're kind of driving through. Um And I guess it's because it is that um, it's from a male point of view about male interactions and masculinity as well, like some very Mm -hmm. um, stereotypically male things, like a a hitchhiker Mm -hmm. who's a serial murderer, um, you know, jumping into someone's car and then holding them hostage. I mean, that isn't a a new concept, Mm -hmm. but um, it's interesting that the titles at the beginning are saying this is based on a true story this could happen to you and it's um it's already trying to be made relatable yeah
4: yeah, so that film is really interesting because it well it represents a couple of things. It was um, the cinematography was done by Nicholas Musaraka, who was this famous film noir cinematographer. He um, did beautiful, you know, he lit shots beautifully and yeah. composed things really wonderfully. So I think you can see his influence there. But when you're talking about having a, a woman's perspective or the female gaze, you know, within this very masculine environment, it's kind of not new because there are a lot of male directors who were actually very... Um, sensitive about women's issues. People mm. like George Cukor, um, you know, Michael Curtiz, who filmed women's pictures and they did it in a very sensitive manner. So that idea of like, you know, swapping gender identification, I suppose, if you want to call it yeah. that, is not necessarily new, but it is really fascinating that she didn't shy away from this extreme violence yeah, um, on both sides of this group, like the, the guy who's the... Um, who holds the two men hostage is is awful. But when Mm. you think about what the men have to do to kind of, you know, put up with it, that on that side, that they don't descend into, you know, equal masculine aggression is, I think, very key there that you can see she's trying to play with these concepts.
0: And the friendship between them, like even when um, one of them gets injured and – is about to get run over, the Mm. other runs to their aid, um, whereas they could have, as the um, villain says, you could have run and saved yourself, but you didn't. Yeah. So there's that kind of, I guess, selflessness and bond between them, platonic bond.
4: Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, maybe some other filmmakers would let that the first guy just run away because that yeah. is maybe you know greater cinema you can have one hero to, to you know vouch for but mm. in this sense it's doing something a bit more interesting I think
0: yeah it is and um, there are a few that are doing some interesting things in that kind of sense of challenging gender norms and stereotypes and um, one of them is the interesting I'm just going to try and find them because <laughs> I've got like a million of these. Um, the one with the tennis player, female mm-hmm. tennis player, who's kind of out being a star, essentially. Yeah. Like, I mean, even that's kind of unique in the sense of like glorifying female sports. Yeah, for sure. Figures at that yeah, time in
4: the early nineteen fifties. That's hard, fast, and beautiful. Yes. That film. Yeah. yeah, and that's a significant film because prior to this, I mean, even in this case, although this was uh, had a bigger budget because of the RKO deal, but. Ida Lupino was working with kind of, um, you know, she was working on location. She had a very stripped back aesthetic. So, you know, very low budget productions. But in this case, she worked with Claire Trevor who was her first big star that she'd worked with essentially that she directed. And Claire Trevor was, had been around for over a decade. Mm. She was an Oscar winner at this point. So, you know, a very accomplished star and that she, Uh, kind of plays this role of this horrible mother figure who who kind of exploits her daughter at the expense of her daughter's happiness and she's doing it essentially knowingly Um, is really extraordinary that she presents a very unsympathetic figure but not in a way that demonises her um, Mm. and not in a way that suggests that anyone's doing anything wrong. Um, and that no one's a villain. I think in, yeah. in this film, it's not black and
0: white. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting kind of concept to have that. There is no moralizing or kind of here's the message of the film yeah. type of approach. Like there were a lot of films at that time that have some nuance, but you know, there kind of still was at least a good guy or a bad guy, mm-hmm. or you know, a little bit more of a simplification of human relationships.
4: Yeah um and I mean in a sense there there is in still in some of her films mm. you s- sense that in terms of there being a resolution to a film, it might be somewhat simplified. But that wasn't unusual in Hollywood at that time either to kind of have a film that was really rich and interesting and fluid and challenging, um, you know, expectations, but then in the end was kind of tied up with a neat bow. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's particularly unusual. Um, But you're right, like she didn't sort of say there's an easy answer to anything. Um, There was no you know, there, it was always a challenge. Um, I think her films were always challenging the way that events were received in society. Um, I think that we should talk about outrage.
0: Yeah, that you read my mind. <laughs> that was literally my next... Because this is a, like an
4: incredibly important film and it's mm. astounding that it's not spoken about more. So it's often mentioned as the, the first film in Hollywood that dealt with rape explicitly and... I mean, it's not, but it is the first one that is perhaps explicit in a number of ways, not as far as to ever speak the word rape Mm. uh, because that was uh, not something that could be done with the censorship code at that time. Um, But it is very um, forthright about the effect of a rape on this young woman in a small town in California.
0: Yeah, well, she's traumatised and, I mean, she even um, wrongfully attacks someone she mistakes to be the Mm -hmm. perpetrator. Yeah and so I think
4: what is great about this film I mean one of the most significant films before this that it often gets compared to is Johnny Belinda by Jean Nicolesco who um, directed Jane Wyman in the role of a deaf woman who gets raped and then cannot um, speak or communicate her her experience Mm. Um, and she won an Oscar for that I think or at least got nominated for an Oscar so it was kind of this institutionalised acceptance that that something very difficult and taboo had been approached in a sensitive manner, you know. But with outrage, it didn't get as much attention as as Johnny Belinda. But mm. the way that... The difference, I think, is that there's... You know, Ida Lupino doesn't kind of pose an answer and she's not saying that this is a, this is an event that then causes problems for the men in society, which I think is what Negalescu was doing. Yeah. But she says this is something that cannot be understood at all from anyone's perspective except mm. for the woman who was the victim. Yep. Um, and that's what's really quite astounding about that film. And, of course, she never speaks about it, but the things that go on around her, you can sense her shame and you can sense, you know, her family's... Not her family's shame, but the family's, you know awareness that people are thinking about them in this different way. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's what's really quite stunning. And there is, you know, there is sort of a very simple ending to that film in a way that might undermine the complexities of what she's experimenting with. But, Mm. But I don't think that we should really consider that as being in Lupino's, you know, main goal.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, she's working in a situation where she's really the only woman. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, there were other film directors who were women across the world, but in such a high stakes commercialised industry like Hollywood, um, you know, Lupino has said in a range of times, oh, you know, I I wouldn't lose my femininity. Mm -hmm. You know, that's important to me. You know, she wasn't trying to be a man in a man's world. Um, And that said, she's very, was very smart Mm -hmm. in navigating, I guess, the political... Issues of having a female director by saying, you know, she would often defer to some of the men and pretend that she didn't know <laughs> yep. some of the things she definitely did know so that they would be more accepting of having a woman in that key role. Yeah, it's really, it's
4: really curious. Like, I wonder, was she a bit conservative in that way? Or, like you say, was she trying to kind of, you know, get up from the inside. The so, path so of so least speak.
0: resistance. Yeah,
4: yeah. And she was yeah. really subverting these expectations of the men around her. So she would do things like call herself mother on the set. Yeah. You know, she approached um, this act of directing from a very gentle kind of point of view, I think. Mm. Um, and in that sense, I mean, men ha- men who have worked with her, for instance, Frank Lovejoy, who worked on The Hitchhiker and um, I think something else I can't recall, but... Um, he said, we always did what she asked because she was so easy to deal with and it was so great to just, you know, be able to please a woman in this sense kind of thing. So she wasn't trying to interfere with that. And she did speak conservatively about, you know, that it was a woman's role with the family first and foremost, but she was still doing all of these really incredible things. And, I mean, Mm. you mentioned directors around the world. Like, I think that she perhaps directly inspired the Japanese actress Kinuyo Tanaka to become a director I'm not sure how directly, but but Mm. there was possibly a connection there. Um, And, you know, so she did great things in Japan.
0: Yeah. Well, it's really important to see when there are... In a field where there is very few women, to Mm. see women doing something successfully, being accepted and lauded by her peers Mm -hmm. for that particular role that they're playing.
4: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And she has, you know she has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for film and one for television. Mm. So the the fact that she is acknowledged in this sense is really, you know, quite incredible.
0: Yeah. And let's talk a bit about her many talents because Mm. she did say um, that in 1965, she said, writing is my first love. And Mm. then about 10 years later said, writing is always what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. She's not necessarily known... That's not the first credit you would give her as being, you know, a writer. But presumably that was something she did pursue.
4: Yeah. So she wrote on, I mean, she wrote the screenplays for a number of films, including um, Outrage, including the first film that she directed, um, Not Wanted, which was meant to be directed by another um, male director who had a heart attack two days into filming, so mm-hmm. so she took over. So she had written the screenplay and was producing, and and then took over the um the directing of that film. She wrote a few other screenplays w- with Collier Young, who she divorced from yeah. after they had started their production company, but still work they still worked together. Um, which presented some quite interesting situations mm. <laughs> um, throughout their careers. But, yeah, she did write quite a lot. And I'm not sure how much of her TV work she was involved in in writing, but, yeah. um, you know, she did kind of keep that going for sure.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, the many hats she really did have were directing, writing, producing, um But she also started out her career as an actor. Mm -hmm. She was kind of expected almost to be one given her lineage and her parents' involvement in the industry. And it kind of, she said at various times you know, she got sick of acting, she was bored yeah. by it and everyone wanted her to to stay and, like, I think, was it Paramount was offering her, like, a big contract and yeah. she just thought, no. Nah.
4: Yeah, I think she got into quite a bit of trouble for turning down a lot of roles when she was on contract at Warner Brothers. Um, but it's really quite, I think, a fascinating career trajectory because she was an A-list, like, she wasn't just an actor who got, thought there's nowhere for me to go from here. I'm going to try being a director. She was an A-list actor. Mm. She was earning an extraordinary amount of money in Hollywood. So she gave... I mean, she didn't give it up because she did return to acting um, throughout her career. And then in the 70s, after a big, you know, stint in television directing, she returned to acting a a few times. But she did give up this very promising career to challenge herself as a director, I think.
0: Yeah. Mm. And... It's presumably a good thing to have been an actor directed mm-hmm. by someone and then be in the other role because yeah. you, can, um, you can see many sides and you can work presumably better with actors. That's something that has more recently been discussed about um, the fact that the better directors are those who have been actors in the past.
4: Robert Wise, who was one of Ida Lupino's contemporaries, when he first directed a film, he went and got acting lessons because he wanted to understand and like create really very believable um, and assist very believable performances. So you're right on there. And I do think that that Was was influenced her not only her talent at directing but her talent at bringing everything in on time. Like she was um, very renowned for always bringing things in under budget and you know to schedule. Mm. Yeah, which was not a talent that a lot of (laughs) male directors had.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that is really funny. Mm. Um, Can we talk a bit about one of the other films in the lineup, The Bigamist? Mm -hmm. Because that is another one with an interesting social theme that you know wasn't necessarily commonly portrayed on the big screen.
4: Yes, uh, bigamy, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Gives it away. Um it- and i think that when you think about men trying to get the most from women or from their lives and you know exploiting their positions of um their positions of prominence in society or whatever there are so many films about mm. men just bandying around around and kind of you know parading about and exploiting their privilege whereas this is a film that maybe does that on the surface if you read a very simple plot synopsis, but overall it doesn't do that at all. It's saying, you know, it puts a man in a very specific position that he's in a bind and it doesn't justify his actions as he has two wives because each of them offers him a different thing. So it doesn't excuse his behaviour, but it's exploring it in a really kind of complex way. Mm. And that idea of, you know, um, women struggling to have children as well is something that is made or women's desire to have children and that kind of like um, confusion that sometimes a personal desire can have with social expectations is something that that Ida Lupino returned to a number of times in her career um, with, you know, the film um, Not Wanted, for instance, and Mm. a few things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And she's noted to be unique in another way in the sense that her career didn't stop Mm -hmm you know, when she was directing in films, she continued on for many years. So she essentially had from the 1930s till the 1970s a very long and successful career.
4: She might have even had a more successful career in television than she did in film as an actor or a director. Mm -hmm. Um, But television is something back then and and still now, although maybe things are changing, um, uh, was not kind of given as much significance um but she directed so much she's very unique in that she was the only woman to ever direct an episode of the twilight zone and there were hundreds or maybe up to 200 of those episodes so that's quite extraordinary wow. yeah
0: um
4: yeah so that's yeah that's amazing she directed episodes of alfred hitchcock presents um the boris Karloff series thriller um a whole lot of things
0: mm. um so eloise your role as a co-programmer at the Melbourne Mm Cinematheque. How awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, It's such a great institution really in Melbourne to be bringing these films and the directors who we really would have no exposure to unless it was put in front of us. um, What are some of the things that, that you have to consider when you're Programming a season like this one on Ida Lupino because it seems like it's been very carefully put together.
4: Yeah, it has. So we wanted to balance, and this is a quite extraordinary season in that it's a four-week season. Most of our seasons are three weeks, some are two, um, some are just a single screening. But the last four-week season in that I can remember was maybe about six years ago, and it was four weeks on the actor Alain Delon. Um, Mm. So this is quite extraordinary because. She 100% deserves the four-week, you know, focus that we have, if not more. So we had to be really selective. The first two weeks are screening things that she directed. So the Hitchhiker, the Bigamist, um, Outrage, we've got um, some of the TV shows that she directed, the Twilight Zone episode, The Masks, and then one has been added, the 16mm Shrine as well. Mm. Um, that was one that she, I think, was uncredited on, but but helped out on. on yeah, so that's the kind of first focus and then the follow the following two weeks are things that she acted in. So, very famous roles. I wish there are so many more that we could have screened. Yeah. Last year we screened a couple of Raoul Walsh films that she was in because we did a Rao Walsh focus, so um, they were some of her Warner Brothers films, so she has shown up at the Cinematheque before. But a lot of these programs are uh, these films are also screening on imported thirty-five mm prints, which is of course part of our um, part of our
0: focus at the Cinematheque is to screen uh, print material. Well, it's good to see that that's the case, and also that potentially these are rare opportunities to see um, restored versions of what are very.
1: Old films.
4: Yes. Um, And some of them, uh, you know, there are more efforts being done in the archivist community to restore more of Lupino's work, which is really necessary. But yeah. at this stage, not a lot of them have been released on DVD or Blu-ray, mm-hmm. you know, home viewing formats. Um, simply, I mean, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them, I think, is that idea that that men seem to, you know, have a step up into the, the canon, <laughs> you know, in universities yeah. and in, in histories and in this, you know, home viewing format kind of thing. So, I'm sure that there are there are steps being made to rectify that, but but seeing them on
0: the big screen is just going to be, yeah, really awesome, really awesome, (laughs) Mm. and it starts tomorrow, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Which is really great, and some of the most. Um, well-known ones that we've just been discussing are happening in the first go. We've got um, the hitchhiker, which I was just talking about, the bigamist, and the bride who died twice. Yeah, that's the
4: good. the TV episode, the uh, Boris Karloff kind of anthology series.
0: Yeah, so, from 1962. Yeah. So it sounds like a great lineup, um, yeah. and as you said, it goes for four weeks. So pretty much the whole of October from yeah. now on is Ida Lupino, which is fantastic.
4: Yeah. Yeah, so a whole month Filipino. It is actually the hundredth year of her anniversary of her birth yeah. this year. So that was not why we decided to do this program. It was just coincidental, I guess. But there are there is sort of a, a, sw- a swell in the film community around the world yeah. around the work of Ida Lupino because a bunch of other places are, are you know doing tributes to her as well.
0: Mm, that's awesome, Eloise. Thank you for coming in. It's been really great to chat with you. It's been really great. Thanks, Amy. and rectify. <laughs> the in unjust circumstances of not even being aware of such great women of history so yeah well it's always a pleasure to you know
4: to share this information and to yeah. hope that more people can go and seek out her work now
0: i hope they can i do hope they can if you want to listen back to any of the interviews that have happened today it'll be up on on demand very soon and then obviously on podcast thank you eloise for coming in thanks amy